Greetings and welcome back to the Book of the Year, our weekly study of Tanakh, which we normally do in the confines of our beautiful young Israel century city. And for a number of weeks now, we've been studying um, from a distance. Mirza Hashem, soon we're going to regather to study uh, live. Uh, but in the meantime, we'll continue studying via this, uh, this medium. Uh, and perhaps afterwards, we'll continue as well, uh, along with learning together. Uh, and we are studying Sefer Breshit, Perak Tervav. We've gotten up to that momentous uh, point, those key four psukim, uh, which comprise the actual words of the Brit Ben Amitarim that we've been leading up to for a number of weeks. And let's take a look at those words. Uh, first, just an introductory line, which is a few psukim back, which will play a role in at least from one angle our analysis of this Brit. Um, uh, Hashem. Uh, introduces himself to Avram in what is either the first or the second piece of this puzzle. In the last year, we talked about the chronology of events here. And Avram's question of which we discussed at length a few weeks ago, whether that means give me a sign that I'm really going to inherit it or what's the vehicle through which I'm going to inherit it. What's the manner in which I'm going to inherit it uh, is one that puzzles us a little bit and troubles us, depending if, if it's really a, a demonstration of a lack of faith. So after Avram, Hashem tells Avram to take the animals and Avram cuts them up and then the ravens come down and then the darkness comes and everything that we've been looking at over the past few weeks, we then come to the actual words. Hashem says to him, now, you notice on the sheet, I used blue to indicate to correlate with the blue of Bama'idan. We'll get back to that. Which is a form we're familiar with uh, repeatedly in Tanakh, in which the, uh, the name of the verb is used uh, followed by a participle, which is usually interpreted as indeed or certainly, which is either something which is stressed or else is a surprise. now before going any further, we have to ask, why did I decide to put these four psukim and separate them out and call this the Brit? Well, the text itself tells us that this is a piece by itself, because first of all, it starts again with Vayomer Avram, even though Hashem had already spoken to Avram and told him to take the animals. There was no speech sin- since then. Avram took the animals, Avram sent to push the ravens away or the, the predators away, and then Avram had the, uh, the darkness come on him, and then Hashem spoke to him again. So there's a new speech going on. The pasuk following this is a description of the fire and of the fiery furnace that walks between the pieces of the animal. And then, On that day, Hashem made a brit. So these are the words of the brit itself. Right? Now, notice that there are four psukim. Is that deliberate? It's certainly deliberate. Is it significant that it's for? Perhaps. In any case, let's see what the gist of these psukim is. 
Yadortida, you should surely know. Your children, your seed, are going to be strangers in a land that is not theirs. Now notice that this is a response to Avram's question of how do I know I'm going to inherit it? Perhaps. Or perhaps this is independent of that question, but it's still the crux of the breed of giving him the land. And so in order to get the land, your children will need to be out of the land and not only strangers in a foreign land, meaning not here, but a land that doesn't belong to them, not as if they're going to expand the land or conquer elsewhere. They are going to be strangers in a land which is not part of their destiny. And they will enslave them. And the assumption here is that they is the masters of that other land and will oppress them, and the two are not the same. Va'avadum is a technical status. They will have the status of slaves. The second thing is inuotam is not about status, it's about reality, is that they will have be oppressed. Now, it's possible to be a slave and have some sort of a contract and a regular relationship. It's possible to be a free man and to be oppressed. They will have both. Arbamiochana. And that will happen for 400 years, maybe. We'll have to see what that means. And we're going to devote an entire shiur to the problem of the Arba Meochana because it is a huge problem that starts here but doesn't end here. It carries through to Parshat Bo and, uh, and it has implications for our understanding of chronology and Tanakh in general. So we'll, we'll deal with that issue later, but it's on the table. Vigamata goya sheyavodu dan anochi. The nation that works them, I will judge. In other words, there's going to be some nation they're going to be exiled to. And it's not at all clear that the exiling nation is the master of that land. Meaning, they may not be exiled by a nation. They may be exiled by something else, like, let's say, a famine. And the masters of that land may not be the cause for them coming there but will be their hosts, and they will be the ones to enslave them. And then God says, I will judge the ones who enslave them, which raises a huge question that we're going to have to devote another shi'a or two, which is the issue of predestination and of free will and the problem of holding this enslaving nation accountable for what they did to Am Yisrael, when this is all set up in advance a problem which all of the Rishonim address and come up with some different answers and approaches to understanding. Then they, your children, will leave with great wealth. Now remember, Rechush Gadol is something that we that has continued to, uh, to be part of the Abrahamic narrative. It starts, They come with their, their possessions. Avram comes with his possessions from Haran. And then they come up from Mitzrayim with the Rechush, and the Rechush is too much, and as a result, Avram and Lot end up separating. And then when Avram saves uh, Lot uh, and everybody from Stom, the negotiations with Stom is over the Rechush, the property. Rechush continues to play a central role in the Avram narrative, and here it is again, they will leave with great wealth. Now, Avram is not told what country this is, but he might be thinking in the back of his mind, wait a second, going to a foreign land, being a stranger, and then having trouble, and then leaving with great wealth, hmm, sounds maybe like what I what happened to me in Mitzrayim. 
ואתה תבוא על אבותיך בשלום, תיקבר בשיבה טובה. You, and meaning, and as for you, meaning I'm telling about your kids, now as for you, you will come to your ancestors in peace, which is a, one of the several biblical um, adages or, or aphorisms for death, to come to your ancestors, to be gathered to your ancestors, to lie with your ancestors, right? And of course, in Avram's case, it's not literal because his ancestors are buried in, buried in Haran or in Urkastim, and he's going to be buried in Hebron, as we all know. So it, it's a way of saying you'll die. B'shalom, meaning that all of these things are not shalom. This will happen much later on, after you're gone. Tikaver b'seva tova. You will be buried at a good old age. Now, there's two important pieces of information happening in this pasuk. One of them is that none of this terrible stuff will happen while you're alive. So you might think, great, so... I'm going to live another 15 years and it's going to start. No, no, you're going to live a long life. You're going to die at a very old age and won't have started yet, which means this is way off in the distance. The fourth generation will return here. Now, this is a bit of a conundrum because if you're telling Avram that this will all start and it's supposed to be a 400-year process and it's all going to start after you die and you're going to live a long time, and the fourth generation is going to return here, something doesn't fit. Something's got to give. Because if you only have four generations there, the assumption is that Avraham, if he's going to live an old life, even though he doesn't yet have kids and he's in his 70s, nonetheless, if he, if he is part of this promise, which he was told he's going to have children, then you would assume that he'll at least see the third generation, which means the very next generation will be the one to already return here. So how much enslavement, how much oppression could there be uh, for fourth generation to return. So I have to figure out what that fourth generation is. Notice the many fours here, and that's why I mentioned the fact that this four psukim may or may not be significant. 400 years, fourth generation, four psukim. Kiloshalim avon mori adhena. And then God gives, at the very end of the Brit, uh, what seems to be sort of an incidental remark, which would you think be not, not germane to the Brit and something you wouldn't want to necessarily end it with, which is the sin of the Amori, and the Amori is, the, shall we say, the most popular nation in, uh, in, in Canaan, and they are the ones, by the way, with whom Avraham has had a Brit, um, uh, that the sins of the Amori are not fulfilled until then. And the seeming understanding, which is taken by the mainstream of, of uh, the interpretive tradition, is that the sins of the Amori will not have completely written them off, have not completely sunk to an irredeemable level, if you will, until that point. God sees that in the future. And only at that point can they leave. Can I send them out? Can I exile them? And then your children can come. Now, of course, that's not the only way that it has to play out. It could play out that as soon as I'm ready to bring your children back, I'll bring them back. And if the local people have not yet sinned so badly that I have to send them out, I could send them out anyways, or I could have them come in and coexist. So the model that's being created here is a model of mutual exclusivity. In other words, either the MRE are here or you are here, you, your children. And so, therefore, the only way for your children to come back is to wait until the Amori are going to be sent out. And so we have to see how that all plays out. And that, of course, we have to see that through Sefer Yoshua and Shoftim and all the way through Sefer Malachim, really, 
um, to see to see how accurate the, that actually plays out uh, on the ground, as we might say. Uh, but th- these this is the the, the breed. Now, there's one interesting point I want to get to before starting to 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 go over it again and analyze it more in in detail. Is again this last line, Kilo Shalema Vona Moria Rehena, seems to be something of an anticlimax. Um, matter of fact, you would think that would be a great way to end this. And Vidor Vyashuvohena, you might have put in somewhere near the beginning. Maybe. Unless perhaps what's meant is that your children will leave with great wealth, but there won't they won't come back until there's a fourth generation, which means they may not come back right away with that great wealth. We don't know. It's all quite mysterious. We'll talk about that in a moment, about the mystery and the inscrutability of this of this nevuah, of this breed. But the fact that it ends with is really a very powerful statement. It's a powerful statement on several from several perspectives. And it is it informs, in a sense, the crux of the Brit. Because the Brit is a Brit made with Avraham, which is not made based on favoritism, inherent favoritism, and we've already gotten that clue earlier on in the Parsha. We hear that God has a connection to Avraham, a special connection with Avraham, because of Avraham's emunah. Right away we hear, earlier on in the parasha. Avraham's immediate affinity and understanding and ability to make the breed, to cut the animals up and to participate in that, in that and to have, in spite of all of the terror going on, to still shoo away the predatory birds and everything else that under, Avraham understood shows him to be a person of sterling character, a person of spiritual sensitivity, besides a person, as we saw in the last parak, of valor and of power. Um, the statement at the end of this Brit is that the Emori, not you, the Emori, also have accountability to God, and their destiny is also bound in, bound up with their spiritual and moral station. And I cannot, based on the rules that I've written for myself, and that's going to come back in Perak Yodchet, when Avraham challenges God to stick to the to His justice in dealing with stone. So God here says. I cannot exile the Amorim until their sins have gone all the way full, whatever that may mean, God's calculation. How much more so, Avraham, that your own existence in the land, the existence of your children in the land, not only the right to come and occupy it, but to stay there is going to be dependent on their status. And we're going to see this come up a little bit in the Rishonim as we examine it. So again, taking a look back, we see, first of all, that Hashem says to Avram, that Yadoa Tidah, and we got to see what that phrase, Yadoa Tidah, you shall surely know what that means. And he says, your children are going to be strangers, a ger, in a land that's not theirs, v'avadum v'inuotam. And I color-coded it the way I did, because what you see is really three steps, three steps of alienation. The first thing is that, for right now, by the way, you're a ger, but you're a ger v'toshav. You are a stranger here, but you are a welcome stranger, you're an esteemed stranger, you're a powerful stranger who's made treaties with the locals. Your children are going to have a very different experience. They're going to be in a different land, not one that they're promised, and they're going to be strangers, and they'll be treated like strangers. And then the next step is they're going to be enslaved, and the next step after that is that they will be oppressed, further degradation. 
And that's the way that the Rishonim, by and large, read this as three steps that happen. And then God says, I'm going to judge the nation and enslave them. Again, we have to leave that for another time, as with the Arba Me'el Shana. And V'achrechen Yitzu Berchush Gadol, which is a, a, an, a curious thing, because if Avram's asking, how are my children going to, how do I know my children are going to get the land? Or what's the necessary step for my children to get the land? The first thing is that they have to go and leave and become impoverished. And by the way, Avram is wealthy. They have to go, they have to leave, become impoverished, and become oppressed. And then I'm going to step in. I'm going to judge the nation that oppresses them or that, that, that enslaves them. And then they will become rich again. And then they're going to leave. And then, the fourth generation will return here. Now, I asked before about the sequence of the Psukim and mentioned that could have been put up earlier. There is one way of addressing this that may resolve that in the sequence of the Psukim. You could argue that if we ignore the problem of the what that means and when it starts, then maybe this is all going to happen in Avram's life. Avram will be sitting here and his children are going to end up leaving, etc. And I'll judge the nation that oppresses them and they will leave with great wealth and then you will die and the fourth generation will return here, which would mean that for a few generations, your children are going to be somewhere between that land and this land or in some state between slavery in that land and sovereign in this land, wealthy, landed, but not yet sovereign. And then after you die, then they'll come back because then the sin of the MRE will be complete. All possibility. So I just want to talk uh, for a little bit about the, the very murky nature of these words. We have a, um, uh, a, a, the phenomenon of prophecy, which occurs throughout Tanakh, starts earlier than this, uh, but this is the, the first really powerful visual piece, um, and continues, again, throughout Tanakh. And sometimes prophecies, you'll notice, are quite explicit, both as far as the timing goes of when they're going to be fulfilled, critically the name of the players and the names of the countries and the direction they'll be coming from, etc., very explicit. We find a number of these in Sefer Malachim and in Yirmiyahu. And then we also find prophecies that are very vague, that use very vague terms or strange terms of people and lands that we haven't heard of that maybe represent something else. So, for instance... Um, when uh, when Yaakov on his deathbed talks to his sons, he talks about Lo Yasur Shevet This is a classic example. The scepter shall not leave Yehuda or the lawgiver from between his legs. Ad ki And every parshan has a different approach to understanding. Ad ki That whole pasuk, the whole nevuah. And what are we to make of it? Does it mean Yehuda is the leader right now at the deathbed and he's the leader until forever? In which case, what's Ad Kiyavoshilo? Does it mean that when Am Yisrael appoints a leader, that leader will be from Yehuda and then it'll never leave him? But till then, there is no leader? What does it to mean? So we could sort of imagine that if you're Yehuda, you're at the deathbed and you hear those words, you walk away with a feeling of, after we come back from bearing father, I'll be in charge of the family. Surprise, surprise, they come back and Yosef's still in charge. Okay, perhaps 
later on, so he tells his children, his children tell his children, we are the tribe who's going to be the leaders. And they get a taste of that, perhaps, when after they leave Mitzrayim, and they find that Yehuda is leading the army. But that's, they're not sovereign, and Moshe is still in charge. And they come to the land, you would assume, okay, after Yoshua leads us in the land and we win, Yehuda would be in charge. Nothing of the sort. We all break up into tribes and there's no central government. All right, so Shevet Yehuda might be saying, you know what? At whatever time we finally have some sort of a centralized authority away from Yehuda, surprise, surprise, it's Binyamin. And I'm just following the Ramban here, the Ramban in, in Vayichi. says, so therefore what happens is, Lo Yasser Shevet Yehuda has to be reinterpreted as once Yehuda has the scepter, it'll never leave them. I mean, the first king will be Binyamin, and then it'll be Yehuda, and then it'll never leave him. Uh, what about the split kingdom? It's another different, another problem. What it means is that you read a prophecy of this sort, and you may think you know what it means, critical, you may think you know what it means, chances are pretty good you're wrong, or it may be one of the many possible ways that that prophecy is going to come to fruition. And then when you see that it hasn't come that way, you have several choices. Choice one is to say, the prophecy is fake. It's false. But if you have a good reason to believe that it's true, like you heard it from Yaakov, Baruch HaKodesh, then on the other hand, you say, okay, the prophecy is true. I misunderstood it. I interpreted it differently. A third possibility, which is a critical shading of that, is to say that the prophecy could play out a number of ways. I thought it might play out way one, it turns out that God has decided to have it play out a different way. Maybe way two, maybe way nine, and maybe way 142, which I haven't even thought of yet. And until it happens, I won't know. And even after it happens, I have to be a little skeptical unless I have a Navi who can identify it and say that's how it played out. We don't know how God works. We don't know how these Nevuot are fulfilled. So when we find Nevuot, again, that are very proximate, that are immediate, that are about uh, Sancheriv coming and besieging uh, threatening to besiege Jerusalem after after conquering Lachish, and uh, and Yechizkiyahu's fears and Yeshayahu telling him, "Don't worry, Sanchiriv will not be able to conquer the city." That's immediate. That's about the city. It's about Sanchiriv, the current king of Ashur, and that's what happens. Um, on the other hand, we have Nevuot like this one, or Nevuot like the beginning of the first few chapters in Yeshayahu, uh, as an example, or the end of Zechariah, all sorts of places in Tanakh which are very murky, they're, they're hard to understand, and it allows for lots of different ways in which they might play out. So, this nevuah is murky. What is murky about it? First of all, yadoa so that means you're not supposed to know this for sure, and what is it you're supposed to know for sure? A lot of unclear things. Think about that. Ger yazaracha, your seed, who you don't have yet, the seed that I promised you, who you don't have yet, will be strangers... Now, which seed is this? Is it your son? Your son's son? 14 generations down the pipe? We don't know. There'll be strangers in a land that's not theirs. Which land? Not telling you. You will find out when it happens. Va'avadum, and they will enslave them. Ve'inuotam, and they will oppress them. Uh, okay, that, you could say, is a little bit easier to identify. But still, what's the nature of the oppression? And what's the nature of the slavery? Is the slavery the oppression, or is there something else going on? Is it choices? Some of them will be enslaved, some of the oppressed? We don't know. And Arvami al is itself a huge conundrum. And by the way, this is the first time that we actually hear that there's a master of the land that they're enslaved who's enslaving them. We assume somebody's enslaving them. We didn't know it was a goy. Maybe it was just a Bedouin tribe, but we don't know who it was. Now we find out it's a nation that's in that land, and I'm going to judge them. 
How is God going to judge them? And what's he going to judge them for? What's that about? And then they'll leave with great wealth. Okay, that we can sort of see. And then when you get to the last pasuk, Vidor V throws another wrench into the works, fourth generation from when? What does that mean? And then, of course, we have the statement about human accountability to God that applies to everybody, which is a beautiful statement, a beautiful ending, and very powerful within the within the matrix of, of the Avraham uh, message and the Avraham toda'ah, the Avraham awareness of God. It's fantastic. But you see that there's a lot of things here that are very unclear, and they could play out in all sorts of ways, as we'll see at the end of this year, make a suggestion about how to, un- how to understand this breed. So what I listed here uh, is 13 different questions uh, about, this, uh, about this parasha, and you notice I co- coded some of them, questions 7, 8, 9, and, and 12. So 7 and 12 we're going to deal with next week, which is in the, parash- in the issue of the 400 years, and 8 and 9 is the issue of judging the nation that, that, uh, that oppresses. The other questions are questions that hopefully we'll touch upon here uh, in our analysis uh, through the Rishonim, and perhaps we'll even leave this for th- those for a second shear, uh, because this brief there's just so much to mine here. So let's take a look at the at the Mefarshim. We're actually going to start from the 19th century, an unusual move, and we're going to start with David Svi Hoffman, who points out, and this is why I I put the blue on Yadoa Teda and Bameida, that he says Yadoa Teda is L'Sheila Bameida. In other words, this is God's answer to How will I know? You shall surely know. In other words, he's saying, Avram said, how do I know I'm going to inherit it? And the first thing God says is, you should know that the only way you're going to inherit it is by them leaving it and being a slave oppressed and a 400-year gap, and they'll, then they'll inherit it, which means you're not going to actually see it happen. All right, um, the Sforno, moving back to the 16th century, <laughs> the Sforno says, Yadoa teda, source two, Hodio sibat ichur yerushat abanim. Now this is a powerful statement, and I have not seen it matched elsewhere in the, in the traditional commentators. He said that Hashem now tells Avram, what's the reason that the, the, the inheritance, the coming to the land, is going to be delayed so long? Four generations, 400 years, again, whatever that may mean, but it's not going to happen immediately. Why is that? He says, Kilo shalem avon He goes to the very end of the Brit. It's beautiful. And he says, Kilo goy sato. It is unjust to expel a nation from their land until they have filled their basket, as it were, of sin, until they've actually reached the limit. Hamarim kain yadoa So he said to him, therefore you should know, even though I'm swearing to give this land to your children. It's not going to be immediate. Why? Because it would be unjust for me to give it to your children and to therefore take it away from the MRE till the MRE fully deserve it. And so he goes on, and this is just a, such a gorgeous mahalach, a gorgeous walk through the parsha by the, by this photo. Your kids are going to be strangers in a foreign land until the MRE have filled their their cup, shall we say, of sin. And so along with that, he told Avram about the enslavement and the oppression that's going to happen to some of the generations. 
Now, here is an amazing twist. He says this did not happen during the generations of the righteous people, meaning Avram Yitzhak and Yaakov. We'll see how far he goes. Shekolzman, and this is a shita that this phono carries through in the beginning of Sefer Shemot beautifully. Shekolzman shahechad min ashvatim kayam. As long as any of Yaakov's sons <coughs> was still alive, the enslavement didn't start. Now, there's certainly a great political reason why that is, and why it is that the enslavement only started after the death of all of the sons of Yaakov, because as long as they were alive, they were still Yosef's brothers, and Yosef was the man who saved Egypt. Only after Yosef's brothers, and that whole generation had died, was it easy for the Egyptians to forget and turn things around. The Sforno has a whole different take on it, which is, Yisvonor's take is that as soon as the last of that generation died out, the people perverted their way. They followed the Egyptians. They left their their connection to Yaakov. This is in Yechezkel. There are passages in Yechezkel, which we have nowhere else to talk about, the behavior of Am Yisrael in Egypt before being enslaved. It talks about them engaging with, engaging with Avodah Zarana and embracing Egyptian culture. And I was going to destroy them, but I saved them for my name's sake. And why did Yechezkel have this? So that people would know through the tradition of Nevuah that this is all God's word. So they shouldn't think that the fact that they're enslaved is because of something else. Don't think that it's your own behavior that has done this or something else, or don't think it's your own avodazar that's done this, but rather it's, it is God's punishment to you. And so the Sfarno's take here is that your children are going to have to be out of the land, and that's because of the justice for the Amorim. Your children are going to be enslaved because they're going to fall off the way. They're going to fall off the wagon. They're not going to be true to the tradition. And therefore, the just, divine justice demands that they be enslaved. But then I will pull them out and I'll bring them here when, based on divine justice, it's appropriate to pull the Amorim out, to knock them out. And so the Sforno uh, continues, I'm going to judge the nation that oppresses them. It's a powerful line. Just like I'm going to judge your children uh, for their wickedness with oppression and slavery, I will similarly judge the nation that oppresses them. So notice, everybody here is being judged. Everybody here is being held accountable to God. Your children are, and therefore they are not just going to leave the land so that they can grow in a place where there's room and they won't encroach on the Amorim until the Amorim deserve to be thrown out. They themselves will go through travails and tribulations um, that, that are a result of their own bad behavior because of divine justice. And only when the Amorim deserves to be thrown out, then they'll be brought back. One thing, of course, missing here is what's going to be the justification for bringing them back uh, well, they have changed their ways. Good. Okay. Um, I want to just touch briefly on the issue of the Dora V.E., the fourth generation returning here. We have four comments, and uh, we're actually going to end with that, and then I'll make a couple comments about the uh, about the Breton in a larger sense and how it was perceived. 
So we're going to start again with Rav David Tzvi Hoffman. His uh, commentary is just so uh, illuminating. And he's addressing uh, modern academic biblical scholars of the 19th century. He says that the, there are some commentators who argue that the word door in this passage actually means 100 years, and therefore the fourth generation of the 400 years fits together. He said that only works though if we assume that Am Yisrael was in Mitzrayim for 400 years, which is not true, and we're going to get to that next week. But according to traditional interpretation, a door is a generation. So now he addresses the issue of the fourth generation of the problem we mentioned. How could it be four generations? How does it work? said the fourth generation of those who left to go to Egypt, which means that Avraham is at point zero, he is of zero, and and we're not going to count four generations from him, but four generations from the beginning of the ger, of the being a stranger. And that is your day when they met to Mitzrayim. Now, Levi kahat Amram Moshe. Levi went down to Mitzrayim, his son is Kahat, and Kahat's grandson is Moshe, fourth generation. Oh, another way to look at it, more explicit in the record of those who come down, Yehuda, Peretz, Chetzron, Kalev, again, fourth generation, Yashuv, Leretz, Kanan. And that, by the way, is helpful because Moshe never made it into the land. Uh, and then, Kilo Shalem, the David Tzvi often says, Zeu Ta'ma And again, I pointed out that this seemed to be a strange climax for the nevuah that the sin of the Amori is not felt here he said that's the purpose of this entire nevuah only the fourth generation and not now is going to get the land only then will the sin of the Amori be complete why did they mention the Amori there's seven nations there, more or less, but there's more than Emory. Because Avram lived in the place where the Emory were there. Now, going all the way back to Rashi, the Doravi. So the same thing. After they go to Mitzrayim, they'll be there three generations. The fourth will return. In other words, this breed happened in Canaan, and Avram didn't move them to Mitzrayim. He never went back to Mitzrayim after this that we know of. Yitzchak didn't. Only Yaakov did. And from that point on, you can count four generations from the young children who came there to Mitzrayim. came into the land, of course. That the sin of the Amori is not complete to be exiled from his land until that point. It's a in the first paragraph of Sota that God does not punish anybody, even the non Jewish nations, until and exile them from the land until they have filled their cup of sin, as it were. Um, the Rashbam, who again, Rashbam in these chapters is Rashbam that we've reconstructed either from fragments of uh, manuscripts or else from other Rishonim who quoted him. Uh, the Rashbam commenting here, as always, is something illuminating and different. Yashuv Yisrael, Yashuv 
Toehu. If you think it's the fourth generation of Yisrael that's going to return here, he's mistaken. Why? God said it's 400 years. Who cares what generation it is? We know it's 400 years. The generation number shouldn't matter. One way or the other, it's 400 years. God gave a reason here. Why does that take 400 years? A fourth generation of Emorim are going to return here. He takes the position that Rav Dovah often rejected, that a door is 100 years. Right? So, that's it. Even though they sinned, and therefore the rule is that Eretz Yisrael should vomit them out, Rashbam says something so innovative here. He says, what's Vidorvi Yashivuina? Dorvi means the fourth generation of the Emoriim. And that's the four hundred years. Dor in the Rashbam's take is equal to two hundred years, and he cites a Mishnah and Eduyo to support it. And the idea is that God remembers the iniquity of parents to their children for the third and fourth generation. And so therefore, that means that even if the Amorim right now have sinned badly enough, he's going to wait 400 years to exile them. And the reason is because he gives them that long for they or their children to do tshuva. The Amorim, understand, he's saying, I'm giving the Amorim that long. I'm giving anybody in the world that long to do tshuva and the opportunity to come back from their wicked ways, and only when they demonstrate that they haven't, then I will throw them out. And so his take on the Arami, on the Doravi'i here is is uh, certainly uh, unique and, uh, and quite insightful. And it says, <laughs> Until their fourth generation, I cannot exact punishment, and then the thing. And then he says, Zehu ikar pshuto. This is something the Rashbam, a phrase the Rashbam uses often when he knows that he's saying, uh, giving an interpretation which is different than the Midrashic tradition. And, but he says, this really is the Pshat. The real Pshat is Dorovi'i, is not Dorovi of Jews, but Dorovi'i of the Amorim who are going to then leave from here. Uh, and that's because only then can I punish them. Okay. Uh, the Ramban. We'll end with the Ramban, and then again a comment about the Britain general. Dorvi He takes the position that Rashi Chazal take. Right, and he quotes Lashon Rabbeinu Shlomo. He he quotes Rashi. and he disagrees. This is what Rashi said. This is what um, what Reb David Hoffman said about Dorvi. He disagrees. What I think it is, is And this is one of the arguments that the Ramban was actually familiar with the writings of the Rashban. He said, God gave the Amorim time from the Gzerah. God remembers the sins of the third and fourth generation. If they do tshuva, he won't destroy them. Now notice what he says. If they deserve it, meaning that they don't do tshuva, then in four generations, when I will have given them as much rope as I can for them to hang themselves, and they don't, or some do tshuva and they don't, then 
your children will come back and they'll destroy them. But if, on the other hand, they do tshuva, then your children can still come back. And this is what we talked about, the mutual exclusivity of the existence of the Amori. The Ramban doesn't buy it. He says it's possible for your children to come back and live here as sovereigns with the Amorim as their, uh, their slaves, to work for them, to work for tribute, or they could leave the land. And he says, so therefore, we'll see what happens till then. Avon Hamori, and now he interprets an interesting way, because the way that we've read it till now is Lo Shalem Avon Hamori meaning that until that point, I know God says, knowing the future, of course, that the sins of the Amori will not be fulfilled, will not be complete till that point, and only at that point can I drive them out. The Ramban says the word Avon doesn't only mean sin. Again, the mention of the Amori, Asher Kigova Arizim Govo, take Logan Amos Bet, now, the word avon here doesn't necessarily mean sin, but it can also mean punishment. The punishment for the sin, just like the word chet is sometimes read as a sin and sometimes read as the punishment or the expiation for that. And therefore, lo shalem avon hamori here would mean that their, the punishment for them, it will not have reached its full time until the fourth generation. So we've seen two very different directions in understanding the Dorvi and the Lo Shalem, and we understand now why, from either perspective, why that's the end of the Nivuah. One more broad comment about this Nivuah before we go, and again, next week, Yemir Hashem, we're going to deal with the issue of the 400 years, is, as I mentioned, this Nivuah is about a far distant time, hundreds of years in advance, and it's definitely, and it's deliberately uh, cloudy. Which nation? Who? Who's fourth generation? You see different opinions about that. What do we do with 400 years? What is the oppression? All very strange. We don't even know why the children have to go in exile and why they have to come back. Uh, when? What, what's going to earn their return? We don't know. Um, and so as a result of that, there are um, three different ways that we could read this breed, just broadly. The first way is the way it's traditionally read which is that this breed was about Mitzrayim. And uh, even from the Ramban, famously, we saw it way back uh, in Perak Yudbet, says that because Avram went down to Egypt and he shouldn't have, as a result, it was a decree that his children would go down to Egypt, that this notion of going to Egypt and being enslaved for a while and getting out through divine intervention of plagues and leaving with wealth, all is following the Avramic model, goes way back, possibly. Um, in which case, this breed is really about Mitzrayim, and it's left vague, deliberately vague, because um, you know you don't you don't want to tell people uh, the details of it, because then they'll feel like they're acting out in a play instead of uh, acting with free will, and it may affect their choices. Possibility two is that this breed could have played out one of several ways, and as an example of that, the the Rav uh, commented once that uh, that Yaakov. Uh, in Haran, working for Lavan, no, you notice in the text that Yaakov suddenly decided when Yosef was born to pick up and leave. Why then? So the Rav suggested that Yaakov thought he was living out Brit Ben-Abitarim. After all, he was a stranger in a foreign land. He was worked hard. He was oppressed, at least the way he describes his own work for all those years. 400 years in any case isn't 400 years. Yaakov may have read it as being uh, a typological number of saying a really long time. And uh, God judged the one who oppressed him. 
who enslaved him, Lavan, and he left with great wealth. And the fourth generation, Avram, it's like Yaakov Yosef. Very simple return. And then when Yaakov sees that they're all going down to Mitzrayim, perhaps his first reaction is to say, oh, I was wrong. That wasn't Brit Benavatari, meaning Brit Benavatari is a one-time deal in history. I thought I did it. I thought we were finished. I thought we'd never go into exile again. We'd be in the land. We've started conquering the land. Yehuda has taken Timna. Shimon and Levi have taken the area of Shechem. We're starting to spread out in the land. And little by little, we'll populate the land and take it over. He sees when they go to Mitzrayim that they're going to have to go through it again, which would mean that when we left Mitzrayim, we really did finish Brit Benavatarim. Successfully, we're all done. Possibility three is that Brit Benavatarim is murky for a different reason, not just because it's far in the future and how it plays out and leave the options open. Maybe Brit Benavatarim is a story of Jewish history. And it sounds far-fetched until you look into the most popular place where this passage is known from, which is from the Haggadah Pesach. More Jews, of course, read the Haggadah Pesach than read Sefer Breshit. And they know at least the first couple lines of the uh, of the brief of Tarim from the Haggadah Shal Pesach. And notice what we say in the Haggadah Shal Pesach. Baruch HaMakom Baruch Hu Baruch HaKadosh Baruch Hu and then in many Haggadot it says Chishev Etaketz God calculated the end and we quote it that God calculated the end in order to fulfill this for Avram Avinu which means it happened once in Mitzrayim, and God calculated how things would work out. However, the version of that text, one small word, one small letter makes a huge difference. The version of that text in the in the Rambam's Haggadah and Shabbat Le'alaikat Haggadah and many Haggadot is not Kodesh Baruch Hu Chishev but Kodesh Baruch Hu Mechashev Not that God calculated the end, but that God calculates the end, meaning that He's always considering how to redeem us. But you don't need that because in the very next line we say, avotenu. This, the Brit Ben is what stood for our ancestors. In other words, this Brit is something that we have had with us for our entire existence. And think about how many different times in Jewish history, portions, not all, but portions, because at no point did all of this Brit play out, in 400 years certainly not, but portions of this Brit played out whether it's in Galut Pavel or whether it's in our modern redemption from the various countries that we've been brought. However we want to read it, in so many different generations, pieces of this breed have been fulfilled. And so perhaps here, the cloudiness, the murkiness of this nevuah is not because of the typical approach of saying there's a lot of different ways that God wants to fulfill this thing once in history or to make sure that the players don't consider themselves to be marionettes, but maybe because this is a breed that then becomes encoded as part of the, the pattern of Jewish history, and especially taking a page from the Sforno, that this is about accountability, and then that would then mean that the breed continues because, as we see at the end of, of uh, Parshtach Remote, if the children themselves sin, they'll be sent out of the land. And somebody else will populate it, and then we'll come back and do it again. And that's, again, of course, how, how our history has played out. All right, Mirza Hashem, next week we're going to take a look at the issue of the Arvami Shana and the various different approaches to it. Uh, and everybody should have a wonderful Shabbat. And Mirza Hashem, soon we'll be able to gather again in our beautiful shul and study Torah together on Shabbat afternoon. Shabbat Shalom.